What kind of a democracy can it be if a large portion of the population of a country is behind bars and doesn't have any rights and its children are made to suffer? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. What image comes to mind when you hear the word democracy? It's probably the ballot box, an object we come in contact with every two or four years, if that. But there's a foundation beneath democracy that democracy depends on, one that most of us either never have contact with, or if we do, it becomes a huge factor in our lives and our basic ability to exercise freedom. We're talking about our system of justice. This, of course, is a rather unique moment in American history when democracy itself is a target for destruction as never before. Powerful forces of the right-wing authoritarians now defining the Republican Party have an image of their own that they seek to impose. White men rule. That's pretty much it. Mass incarceration is something most of us don't see. It's hidden away. Our prisons are filled mainly with both poor and black men. The right is happy that it's that way. Not just those actually behind bars are at effect, but their families, and especially their children, are greatly impacted. Do they really think that's okay? Is that good for our society? In his new book, our guest author Dan Hatcher points out that at this time in our nation's struggling democracy, it's essential to understand how crucial it is that we shore up the foundations of justice and see how shaken they have become. Because, as he notes, if justice falls, all else falls with it. The book is Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. And it uh, just came out from uh, University of California Press. And in it, author, law professor, lawyer, advocate for impoverished children and adults, Daniel Hatcher, uncovers insidious operations turning injustice into revenue. Hatcher exposes how our juvenile, family, and criminal justice systems thrive on monetizing inequality and harm to struggling youth and adults. Unbelievable. One might reasonably expect our system to have as its goal serving all of society by not just locking people away, but making them better citizens, enabling them to have the tools necessary to, be, to free themselves from what got them behind bars in the first place. But it seems the institutions are actually harming the people they are at least theoretically intended to serve. Daniel Hatcher, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much for that introduction, Bird, and thank you for having me on the show. It's wonderful to be here. Well, when I was in the state Senate here in New Hampshire, I can still hear the voice of a state rep when he said of those people in jail, oh, they're all rotten or they wouldn't be there. 
this I, the guy actually said that they're all rotten or they wouldn't be there of course that attitude is shocking and its ramifications are massive you write that courts prosecutors probation departments police sheriffs and detention facilities are all operating like divisions of a factory business trading impartiality independence and justice to use vulnerable populations in an efficiency-seeking and revenue-generating enterprise. Wow. Please explain. There's so much there. In what ways does the system operate like a factory business? Well, that's a a great description, and unfortunately, um, many ways in which they're operating like a business. And this um, transition, what I call devolving, right, from the mission of justice to their mission to maximize revenue um, has been happening historically. I mean, we can go back historically to the foundings of this country in terms of the commodification of humans through enslavement, right, and then through the yes. growth of um, these systems that, that uh, all date back to, to um, difficult parts, harmful parts of our, of our country's Foundings. So currently, these are happening with our with our courts, with our prosecutors, probation departments, policing agency, our detention and, and prison facilities, right? All looking for different ways to, to contractually monetize those vulnerable populations that they're supposed to be serving, right? So if we start with the courts, one of the most striking examples that I uncover in the in this book is how some juvenile courts in our country. Um, are actually generating revenue from child removals. Um, and it gets a little complicated in how they do it because it's sort of a um, sleight of hand. The courts um, uh, that are doing it actually contract to become considered the foster care agency at the same time um, simultaneously, and that allows them to start claiming federal foster care funds called oh, Title IV-E funds. Wait, wait, so, um, so, so I, I got to interrupt here briefly. Yeah, you're, sure. you're saying that the, the, the courts themselves are becoming the foster homes and are siphoning money that way? The courts themselves? Courts themselves are becoming the foster care placing agencies, right, to determine where and when to place the children to become responsible for the care of the children. Um, that's supposed to be the child welfare agency, the mm-hmm. foster care agency that does that. Mm-hmm. Some courts actually do then own their own placements, residential treatment centers. So they'll make even more revenue that way. But if you think about that, then, so the courts exist to part of their huge important role with the child welfare system, with the juvenile delinquency system, is to review the actions of the agencies. In this case, yep. the courts put on their court hat and are reviewing their own actions, right, when they put on their agency hat. And when they review themselves positively, they make more money from the children. Jeez, Literally, the more the, the more children we move from their homes, the more money they can they can generate. Wow! Gosh, what could possibly go wrong with that system? How how is right. it? <laughs> there's so much to talk about here. How is it that this book got written? How did you get uh, sparked to, to write this? And tell us about the uh, the researching uh, process and what it felt like. Sure. Uh, that's a, 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 a very good, difficult uh, question. Um, you know, I've been um, representing children and impoverished adults for over 25 years, um, starting as a legal aid lawyer. I represented children pulled into the dysfunctional, broken Baltimore foster care system. And, you know, that experience in itself was overwhelming and, and 
if I'm being candid, I still carry guilt from that time period because what I saw and, and wishing I had more time to help more. Um, you know, I, 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 I still wonder how children are doing that, that I um, acted as their attorney years ago. Um, and then I've represented countless adults and, and just about every poverty related issue um, that comes up, which is a lot. You know, they're, they're unending from housing to public benefits to consumer actions. Right. You name it, you know, that, that they're um, struggling with license suspensions. Um, so I've, I've worked with uh, vulnerable individuals, children and adults for years. And when you see their individual hardships, right, it's difficult enough. Um, and then my research, you know, I, I started to uncover examples on which the very systems that are supposed to be helping these individuals are instead using them. So my last book um, was called The Poverty Industry, and that, that looked more at the, um, the human service agencies, um, our child welfare agencies, our Medicaid agencies and the like, and how they are often contracting with private companies and monetizing the vulnerable populations instead of helping them. This book right, takes us into, our as, as we've described, our justice systems and how our very systems are justice have joined that poverty industry. And it's, it's difficult to write because I, I believe, you know, like I still believe in the ideals of justice. I feel like we have to believe in the ideals of justice and, and keep striving for that ideal. Otherwise, um, as you indicated at the beginning, our country is in a lot of trouble. Wow. So I interesting also that you point out that, uh, you know, look, humans have been monetized and uh, used for forever. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, especially the, the right these days, try to deny and just erase the history of enslaving people and systemic racism. It's been going on for a very, very long time, and, and people don't want to look at that. And the system of justice does play a, a big role. A, a number of years ago, I read a book called Slavery by Another Name, uh, by Douglas Blackman, who talked about uh, how after slavery was officially ended and became illegal, wink, wink, uh, the system of justice was able to uh, very quickly uh, just, you know, pick up where slavery ended and had slaves uh, in the justice system. So it's it's apparently, I guess it's been this way a long time. Has it gotten worse or, or, or noticeably better or, or just sort of not even looked at? Well, uh, that's uh, a great question. And I think the answer is yes um, to each way you phrase that, right? You know, like, you know, like there, there have been um, improvements, luckily, you know, um, throughout history. And, and um, we need to um, build upon those improvements. But at the same time, much of the monetization that's happening traces themselves those those revenue schemes trace back to our country's foundings right in terms of the mindset of using the vulnerable rather than serving them right and it really goes about to the entire mission the purpose of government the purpose of government is to maximize the welfare of the citizenry you know depending on the the level of government for the federal government it's all of us for the states it's the state population for the counties it's our counties when we get into our human service agencies or the courts Right, is for those populations that come before those institutions. Sure. Right, so they exist for this fiduciary role. Right, but instead of serving, they're using. 
and, and a, a measurable harm. So what, what you talked about with the history too, I, I write about in part of the book, you know, uh, um, um, you know, as the, you were watching at one point, I was even, you know, listening to some of the news come in as I try, as I was trying to um, complete some research. And I wrote that, you know, as voting rights are being subverted across the country, all subsumed within a massive disinformation campaign, the backlash against racial and economic justice continues as ethicless pundits and politicians pound the drum against the study, study or discussion of American history that includes an accurate understanding of racial injustice. The absence of ethics is their power. They savage truth, claiming the remains as righteous, and the weak follow because the ethical road has always been the harder path. Right. So that, you know, ethics is hard. You know, you know, it is hard to be human and it's hard to be true to our mission and our ideals and strive for that. But ethics are everything, right, when it comes to justice and the foundational ideals of democracy. Yes. In terms of justice, especially, I mean, ethics, justice, it's like it's almost one in the same, really. At least that's how I've always thought of it. You know, that that uh, that, that the, the system of justice is there because of ethics, because we want, you know, the right thing to be done. And it sounds like it's gotten a little bit, uh, dare I say, perverted. And juvenile courts, you know, I haven't had any contact with them. And I, I hope, you know, I, I, I tell us about them, please. I, I just, I can't even imagine. How do they abdicate ethics to enter perhaps unconstitutional contracts to generate revenue when adjudicating children as delinquent and removing them from their homes. How how does that work? What is un unconstitutional about these these the processes of the juvenile courts? Sure. Well, well multiple ways. So, so the the courts through their contracts, as we described mm. before, some of these foster care contracts. They also engage in um, Title Forty child support contracts, often targeting the same populations. It could be the same child that is being in their family that is being monetized through the multiple contractual schemes. But the courts are violating um, separation of powers requirements, right? You know, because uh -huh. of um, our country's founding and our, and our concern with tyranny, you know, from, um, uh, um, from the original um, power of the crown in England, right, where it was one entity that exercised power over, over the over um, people there and also their colonies. Um, we built our country based upon a separation of powers between the branches of government. Our courts are supposed to be independent from the executive branch agency and from the legislature. So here in these contracts, you have the courts actually contracting to become another branch of government simultaneously, right? So that's a clear violation of separation of powers, right? They're ruling on their own actions. And then it also violates due process requirements of impartiality, right? Impartiality mm. is so mm. crucial in justice, right? Because you have to be impartially neutral in that pursuit of, of justice, right? And not be influenced by outside issues such as money, right? Money is one of the m base motives that can um, be the lure from the path of justice. So as courts are financially incentivized through these contracts, it's a direct violation of the due process and partiality. And then also ethical obligations are, are very clear that our, our justice officials, whether they be the, the judges, judicial masters, our um, 
policing agency um, officials, right, our probation department officials, our prosecutors, right, all carry ethical obligations to serve, right, and be true to that intended mission, and they're violating their ethical principles through, the, through these contractual processes. And I, I wonder, you know, there, we, we have the three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judiciary, and as you're speaking, I'm wondering about, are they, the, the court system, are they that strapped for money <laughs> that they have to go hustling and, and, and being creative uh, to find ways to, to fund themselves? I mean, that's not how it's supposed to be. Has that been has right. that has that been the situation for a long time? Um, well, yes and no. So, so I, I do think in, in some jurisdictions the courts right may um, be needing, at least in their view, um, some some additional revenue, right? But at the same time, that the courts are looking for this additional revenue, um, you know, th this is an example of agencies that exist to serve also seek to exist, right? Hmm. So, are they seeking the revenue for serving that? justice mission, right? Or are they seeking that revenue to sustain themselves as essentially a factory business, right? You know, to, to keep running. And then that, that shifts to where the, the, again, the children and the poor, right, are almost treated like, um, you know, a mineral being mined, you know, for ore, yeah. you know, like, you know, in, in terms of the factory of, of what's happening. So it's a great question, but sometimes, you know, I do think there's a funding concern that we need better um, neutral funding mechanisms for all our institutions of justice, right? So it comes more neutrally from if it's a county institution from the county level, from the state, from the state, you know, or federal funding, right? But not through these incentivized revenue schemes. And unfortunately, that's what the courts are looking for. That's where, you know, again, they take on this business mindset. And if you're running like a for-profit business, you're looking for money wherever you can get it. You're looking for an opportunity and you want, and you want to capitalize on that opportunity. And having been in government myself, I know that uh, certain interests are always looking for ways to cut uh, government spending. And, uh, you know, oftentimes it's the schools that are the first on the chopping block. And I can imagine the system of justice. You know, you can't see these people. They're hidden away behind bars. So, eh, just cut there. And so that puts pff, that system in a terrible bind and with the effects on actual people. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a part of our democracy that uh, always oh, swept under the rug all too often, but uh, it's, it's kind of ugly. It's kind of ugly and it hurts a lot of people. Our guest today is author Daniel Hatcher, who has a new book out, Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies children and the poor. And removing children from their families is such a big deal for the kids. How do the courts make such life-changing decisions? Are there uh, clear uh, boundaries and, and, and ways to do it? Are there, are, there, are there incentives to remove the children? And wow, talk about that if you would, please. Yes, and, and unfortunately, there are incentives, and the trauma is immeasurable, right, oh, to, to the children, and to, to the parents, to all the family members. Um, there's a statistic that I um, refer to um, that um, children who are pulled into the child welfare system, um, the foster care system, suffer from PTSD, post-traumatic stress yeah. disorder, 
right, at twice the level of veterans of war, right? And, you know, and so this is, you know, just incredibly traumatic for the children and then for the parents. And the trauma doesn't end, you know, as, as they're encountering it, because sometimes even if the children are lucky enough then to be reunified, hopefully with their parents, that, that threat is still there, right? And, and what I write about in the book is, is you know, I, I discuss a, a hypothetical um, child. Well, he's both hypothetical and real because he's based upon my own experiences and representing um, children and adults in the system and also statistics, Right. But um, Sean, with the S being a, a, a dollar symbol, but, mm-hmm. you know, Sean, you know, like when he's traumatized from being pulled into the system, then he then if he is able to reunify with his with his mother, that constant risk is there. And he's the commodity. Right. That the system needs to pull back in in order to keep making money. Right. You know, so, so you know, his his trauma is real. The incentives are unfortunately all too real. And it all comes from these institutions of justice, right? Instead running like a business, monetizing instead of serving. Boy, yeah, it's important to look at this stuff. And we don't look at this stuff very often. And you write that probation departments, you know, where kids are, and lots of people are, are out on probation, they have to behave well. Uh, probation departments routinely routinely profit from child removals. Tell us how that works, please. Right. Uh, again, it happens in a, in a variety of ways. And they're, they're profiting both um, from child removals and then sometimes terminating parental rights. Sometimes that same pursuit of, of uh, 40 child support funds, much of which isn't even owed to the families, right? It's actually um, owed to pay back the cost of, of foster care or, or public benefits. Um, but um, one of the examples I read about out of, out of California, where the um, entire state probation department has these contracts in terms, and they're generating federal foster care for e funds, right, from child removals, from either removals where the children are directly removed from their home, or children who are um, labeled and categorized as foster care candidates, right? So they're labeled as a as a risk. And then if the probation department can keep processing them, right, they can keep making money. And juvenile probation officers just have immense power, almost unending abilities to monitor activities of a youth, right? And they often will start the initial process of recommending court action. Um, They'll do drug tests. They'll put on ankle monitors, right? They'll they'll unannounce visits to schools, to homes, um, you name it. They'll, They'll order treatment, right, that then the families have to pay for it. So it's another way that the probation departments are generating revenue, issue after issue after issue. And if you look at um, this one of the numbers of one county um, in California, Orange County Probation Department generated $5.7 million um, in these federal foster care revenue in just one year. So I suppose they could argue, hey, the system works. Look, we're making money. <laughs> So if, of, if, they, if they view it as using the poor for making money, then then they are being effective at that unfortunate goal. Yes. In this state, I'm recording from New Hampshire. We have something called CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates, which is there to provide a voice for children and youth who have experienced abuse and neglect, and they go into the courts and, and, and argue as as advocates for the for the children. It's a statewide network of trained volunteers to advocate 
on behalf of the children so that they can thrive in safe, permanent homes. Is this uncommon or is this common to most states, do you think? That is common. There, there are different um, um, structures in which court-appointed special advocates are sometimes um, uh, guardian ad litem. Programs uh-huh. are used in various courts around the country. So it's a little bit different each jurisdiction um, and also how they're structured and who runs them. Um, so in some jurisdictions, it can be concerning where if you have what's supposed to be an independent advocate is actually reporting to the juvenile court judge. Right. And, and, and I've seen that in some jurisdictions. I haven't looked at this, that particular program in, in New Hampshire. But you can like having an independent voice to provide information that are fact based can be really helpful. Um, there are concerns if you have, you know, a human who is biased. Right. You know, mm. and then provides information that says, I think this child because this child is poor and comes from, you know, a certain background should be removed from their home. Do you have the ability to um counter that narrative right right? you know so that so there can be there can be helpful benefits but also concerns with some of these structures and again how we set it up to ensure impartiality um that facts are presented in a in in an impartial way are 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 crucial and it does i get the impression it's not exactly a balanced system that 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 the court-appointed special advocates may not have the same uh, power as somebody on the other side, a, a prosecutor, say, or the courts themselves. So it's it's uh, not necessarily, uh, you know, a fair and balanced system there. Now, we've, we've all heard about uh, privatized prisons. I, I, I believe, I'm, I'm not sure what happened with that, but there was a lot of outcry about private prisons, that they were there to make money, specifically to make money. What's the situation with with privatized for profit prisons, and uh, is the, is the the fix a correction that hopefully has been made? Is it is it working, or is it uh, not particularly uh, affecting what we're talking about here—the monetization of of these poor people? Right. Well, lots of layers to that, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and um, good, good question. So um, there has been some. Like you indicate, some pushback against um, for-profit um, prison um, uh, facilities, right? Including at the federal level, one of the first thing that first things that President Biden did, which I viewed as a very good thing, was through executive order um, stopping federal government contracts with um, for-profit um, prison institutions, uh-huh. right? Um, state are still engaged in these kind of contracts. So you still have a wide use of private organizations. It's not just what we normally refer to as prisons, right? And those can be both for adults or juveniles, but also um, for detention centers, for running jail, you know, the more temporary jails before sentencing, right? For treatment centers, you know, a lot of, especially for juveniles, there's been a shift from a lot of statewide um you know, prisons for, for juveniles into more community-based residential treatment centers and group homes, you know, sometimes they're even called camps, sometimes they're even called academies, all kinds of different names that sound good, right? You know, but uh, sometimes they're monetizing mm. um, the youth as well. They're all, they're all driven by this um, goal of more bodies in the beds, right? The more bodies in the beds and the cheaper they run their operations, the more money they make. Um, so the concerns are still there. And what's, what's 
complicated too is, you know, I've, I have, I think there are, are significant concerns with these private for-profit organizations. There's also frequently concerns with some of the private nonprofits, you know, if they're not being true to their nonprofit uh-huh. mission. Right? And even some of the government, you know, um, facilities, right? If the government facilities are running like a business, right, then the same harm is happening, right? You know, whether it be government or nonprofit, um, religious-based organizations, mm. or, or some, some of these for-profits are traded on the stock market. You know, there's some, there's some huge companies that you can invest, you can buy stock in companies that, you know, jail children, right? I'm not going to buy that stock. <laughs> right, me, me neither. And I have to say, many years ago, I visited an alcohol treatment center around here. I was, I was absolutely shocked when the director, oh, just didn't think anybody could hear him aside from a couple people said, and he was sort of laughing. All oh, these people have no hope. They're just, they're just basically filling the beds there, and. It's. It may have been a nonprofit wink, wink. You know, and people, right. people in in nonprofits can make pretty darn good salaries. Uh, it, it struck me as a money making, completely cynical, occupancy maximizing scheme. He contracted with the state. How unique was this? Was this the normal state of thing for you know a treatment center to have that kind of cynical attitude? I mean, I don't know how you can measure or quantify attitudes. Right. Well, it's a, it's a good question. And unfortunately it's, it's not unique. Um, you know, at the same time, I do have to say there are some, you know, lots, you know, of nonprofits that are doing crucially important good work. Uh-huh. Right. And it uh-huh. all comes down to mission and ethics again, just like we were talking about with our government justice institutions. Right. You know, if they, start with and, and develop um, a good mission, um, and then they're true to that mission, that they stay on the right side of the tension between serving the individuals versus serving themselves, mm-hmm. right? Then they can do excellent work. But if they start shifting away towards the opposite side of that tension and focus more on maximizing their revenue for the purpose of their salaries and keeping their business running, mm-hmm. right? That's when the harm results. They're using rather than serving in that kind of instance. And we're talking about this stuff. It has an effect on democracy itself, on our system, who we are, who we think we are, what impression we have of ourselves. And uh, the system, uh, there's always a lot of problems. And this is something that, that we don't often look at. If you just tuned in here, Bert Cohen, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is uh, author Daniel Hatcher. He's got a new book out, Injustice, Inc., how America's justice system commodifies children and and the poor. Uh, and we hear the term parental rights more often these days. We've talked about various different aspects. There's a lot to talk about with regard to this issue of justice and children. And parental rights uh, is a term you know, heard more often, especially from, from the right. It's used by Christian nationalists who are on the warpath against public education. They're really against public education. There's a group uh, uh, I talked about in the show called Moms for Liberty, which is, it sounds nice, but uh, they're against uh, funding for public education. They, they advocate, they actually advocate for corporal punishment, the right to physically discipline their own kids. Is there not a real possibility of harm to the kids by staying in abusive homes? I mean, it's the state 
often has a legitimate interest in protecting children. And it's not always the best thing to keep kids in in the uh, in the home with their you know actual uh, biological parents. Uh, yes, again, you have a lot of layers to that, right? You know, and um, absolutely, there is a an important interest in protecting children and protecting adults. You know, protecting all of us. You know, serving serving our best interests. Again, that that mission for for any government agency is to maximize welfare, right? Of of their level citizenry that they're serving. Um, so when you think about if it's a child welfare agency, they're supposed to exist to serve and to protect the best interests of children, right? Child support agencies are supposed to only be about helping children and the families, right? right? So when they, when they instead, though, focus on the money, um, harm results. So, so if there is um, an abuse um, um, uh, report, if there's an investigation, um, it's a delicate balance, mm-hmm. right, you know, to uh, protect youth while also recognizing the, the crucially, you know, constitutionally recognized relationship between parents and children, right, and to protect society, right, the social fabric, um, um, it's hard um, when these individuals are um, thinking about money in the process, right, that that raises severe concerns and causes severe harm. There's, a, there's an example I, I read about in the book out of, out of um, in multiple jurisdictions in Florida, um, the sheriff's departments actually contracted to become um, the child support, I'm sorry, the, the um, child protective services agency arm. So normally when the child protective services investigations would be done by the child welfare agencies, there in Florida, the sheriffs, some of them contracted to take on that oh um, process. And, and when you look at the numbers, it's money, right? It's all about they're generating millions from the process. Wow. And the the job in general, the job of police and sheriff is not a money making job, but it sounds like perhaps they're actually financially incentivized to act as bounty hunters, carrying out arrests, utility shutoffs, car repossessions, etc. Can you give some examples of of you know police and and sheriff uh, how what happens with with regard to those activities? Right. And, and that's a, um, a good description of that. Um, often, you know, these revenue schemes and the policing agencies is uh, less likely to benefit the individual um, police officer or sheriff right. or city marshal. Right. But in some circumstances, it does. Right. And it certainly is benefiting the finances of um, those individuals offices. Right. So police departments, sheriff's departments are generating millions in revenue to different types of revenue schemes, as you describe. Um, one of the striking examples I write about is in New York, where New York actually has what's called city marshals, um, um, which dates back to um, colonial times, right, in, in, in New York when they when they had these marshals. And, and they're called city marshals, but they don't work for the city, right? They're not a city employee. They're essentially, they're essentially hired guns. Um, they literally can hire guns and they they're not paid any salary either they make all their money yeah. generating fees right and as you mentioned uh, carrying out evictions to, to collecting quarter ordered debts um to utility turnoffs so the list is almost unending they generate all these fees and, and there the city marshals um who who are appointed you know by the city and then it's a contractual relationship 
um, they're making a lot of money. They're, like according to the city's own data, which I discuss in the book, after all the costs, right? You know, or pay their overhead and everything, net average is around four hundred twenty thousand um, per city marshal um, in in New York. Um, so there are fewer now city marshals, but then sheriffs in New York and really across the country and and most jurisdictions, sheriffs are generating, again, millions of, of revenue. They literally get a contingency fee. In some jurisdictions, they call it a poundage. In other, they call it a commission, right? You know, again, the more harm they inflict, you know, they're by causing um, um, evictions, um, by collecting court-ordered debts against the poor, right? The more they do of that, the more money they make. They get a cut of the collections against the poor. So, And that's not just harmful, it's unconstitutional, right? You know, that structure, I, I think, in most of our sheriff's departments across the country is is unconstitutional because, again, it's violating that crucial constitutional principle of due process and partiality. Um, our sheriffs are supposed to be only motivated by the pursuit of justice, right, not the pursuit of money. Um, and that pursuit of money is, is unconstitutional. Yeah, it seems, it seems pretty clear. And... Uh... You know, I think it's it's important to recognize in our uh, system of justice, uh, it's be, it's become much more commonly uh, focused on and and uh, much higher public awareness since the George Floyd uh, murder a few years ago, and it goes on and on and on and on, and clearly policing in many communities routinely practices systemic racism. <laughs> In your research, did you also see systemic racism in the child removal situations? Unfortunately, yes, mm. uh, 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 significantly so mm. um, uh, across the country. So, and, and um, every one of the different commodification practices that I researched and uncovered and, and write about in the book, when you start looking at, at the data, the impact based upon um, poverty and, and race, race is um, devastating um, when you look at the numbers. Um, it's just like in some of the, the, the county court systems in Ohio where the juvenile courts are making money from child removals, right? It's, it's just a, a significantly disproportionate impact based upon um, children pulled from black families compared mm -hmm. to from white families. So some of these jurisdictions, right, it might be um, only say 20% or so of the population are black families, but then the black youth make up the significant majority of the population of children pulled into the system. Mm -hmm. And, and also in some of these jurisdictions, what's concerning is, is you see the further they're pulled in, right, the greater the disproportionate impact becomes. So from the point of um, arrest to charging um, to adjudication, when the court rules on whether a child should be adjudicated as delinquent or not, to the determination of placement, how long they stay in care, um, whether a child is um, waived up as an adult, right? Those numbers are all strikingly disproportionate based uh, on race, and it gets worse as the children are pulled further into the system. Yeah, trying. There's some hope, you know, some numbers of, of, of the carceral system against juveniles has decreased across the country, you know, when you look at the whole population. But while that's happening, the disproportionate impact um, against black children and other children of color is increasing. 
Yep, it it just uh, continues to happen. And uh, one thing, you know, that who is on the <laughs> Joseph Stalin famously said, infamously said uh, that it doesn't. It's not the votes that counts. It's who counts the votes that count. And it, the courts. Who's running the courts now? Uh, in terms of packing the courts, there's you know so many courts throughout this land, from the, the higher level to all the way down to, to local level. And the religious nationalist right has been very successful at making their agenda law, putting it into practice, sidestepping the legislative process, packing the courts at all levels throughout the country. Their judges being, uh, I, my impression is, uniquely harsh and handing down sentences to people without means, largely people of color. And they're all for it. The Biden administration has been more active than Obama's in filling judgeships. Is any progress toward justice being made in this aspect? What do you know about that? Well, as you indicate, certainly with with the Biden administration, there has been um, a positive trend towards increasing um, diversity and every aspect of diversity on the bench, which is crucially important because our our judges should represent us, right? Mm-hmm. And us being us and our diverse self, right? You know, like you know, which is what America is all about, right? You know, uh, supposed to be. Um, so um, yes, I, I do think there have been some positive moves, you know, and and this um, administration. Um, but what you hit on as well, like in terms of voting, it's it's uh, there are impacts from many of these revenue schemes um, that also impacts voting. Obviously, when somebody is currently incarcerated, but um, you know, as we saw in Florida, you know, with what happened with people who have been let out or still on probation, um, the pro- with the with we when we have probation departments that are monetized and probation departments that are then incentivized to have more um, right. individuals on probation. Um, um, many jurisdictions in this country don't allow people currently under a sentence of probation to vote. So it has a, a significant impact vote based upon voting rights as well. And again, those numbers have a, have a starkly disproportionate impact based upon race. And when I think about being labeled a, a delinquent, a juvenile delinquent, and, and getting the label being on probation, not being allowed to vote, and the idea of penitence, and, and the word penitentiary, you know, making yourself better, it seems this just, it ain't happening. You know, the, the people, in the way the system is currently working, the, the lack of enabling people to be better people and to, to you know, we all make mistakes, and, and to allow people to recognize mistakes and to become better people, it seems like uh, instead of helping that and making it better, the incentives are there to to keep people in impossible situations and to label them as as bad people. Uh, It just, there's got to be better ways, I I, I would think. And in in your research, you know, the, the system of, every country has a system of justice. Are there uh, other Republican, with a small r, uh, governments, you know, of the people that that do it differently and that, that 
you've seen as examples of how it could be done better. And, and perhaps there are things that we could learn from them. Your thoughts? That's, that, that's a great question. And, and my research has not yet taken me into looking at comparative programs significantly across the country, although I have certainly seen some and in some of my research in terms of the partnerships with these um, private revenue contractors, right? That growth is, is concerning in that they're moving into some of the juris- some of the other countries, as you indicate, that have better practices currently, right? You know, there's a, there's a tendency now, such as in, in Canada and in the UK, right, which have had some better systems, right? Not, not completely, but right. at least uh, the potential for the ideals where they're looking more and more towards um, that partnership with private companies, right, are taking on more of that business mindset. So the, um, I think we can learn from, from other countries um, um, that are focused more solely on justice and ethics. Um, but at the same time, I worry that some other countries are looking to the U.S. as a model uh, for privatization um, and, and, and increasingly looking at other ways for that revenue tool. And companies are seeing that opportunity um, in other countries and are, and, are, and are growing rapidly. Yeah. Oh, how pleasant. <laughs> but as with so many difficult social and judicial situations, halting the widespread and entrenched practices is exceedingly difficult. You argue the core themes of the solution are simple, mission and ethics. Please do explain. Right. You know, I, it all comes down to, to mission and ethics. And, and mission, you know, when we're talking about all our justice institutions, it's simultaneously a simple but really challenging mission of justice, right? Mm. How do we define justice, right? right? And how do we pursue that? I mean, there's layers of questions there, but the, the mission, right, of justice um, is an ideal. Um, and justice, you know, itself has subparts, you know, that, that are ideals in themselves, of, as, as we've discussed, independence, impartiality, um, the ethics involved in it, right, and, and equality, um, and we have to constantly be striving for that, that ideal, even though we're flawed. As humans, we don't reach ideals, right? You know, that's the nature of ideals, but we have to strive for them yes. or else the ideals are replaced with their opposite. Ethics are so, you know, so, so you have to have that pure purpose, the mission. Ethics are, are so crucial because ethics are, that's the ideal that lifts humans toward the ideals, right? And, and in our justice institutions, that's what, professionally and legally bind us um, to be working towards that, those ideals. So if we're not ethically true and pursuing the right mission of justice, right, that's where the severe harm happens. So the, the principles are really very simple then, you know, are, are, you know, being true to your mission, right? You know, like it's, it, it ain't really complicated when you get down to it mm-hmm. in terms of um, the, the themes behind the fixes, but then, moving our justice institutions in the right way, it's a challenge. Because even as I just said that, right, our justice institutions, they're not, um, these aren't buildings, right? These aren't, um, you know, you know, justice isn't built from marble and brick. It's the human beings within the buildings, right, that are providing, serving, determining, adjudicating, protecting uh, justice. So if we as humans aren't true to those ideals, um, everything falls. So the, the fixes are many, um, you know, you know, and I, and I, um, I do hold hope for, um, 
us ourselves as officials in the justice systems to right our wrongs, right? To, to realize, to open our eyes to our failings on the path towards justice and to walk a better path. Um, that said, you know, I have, you know, almost on a naive hope for, for improving our, our mission towards that ideal of justice. But at the same time, I realize we need lawsuits, right? You know, we need to bring systems um, to be held accountable yes. um, when they're violating um, their obligations, when they're violating the Constitution and ethics. So I, I, I think we'll need um, increases and in, um, uh, systemic litigation around the country challenging these unconstitutional practices. There already have been, you know, there, I mean, there are great organizations out there that are bringing um, incredibly important claims, groups like the um, ACLU, mm-hmm. uh, Civil Rights Corps, Southern Poverty Law Center and the like that are, that are bringing um, very important claims on behalf of populations of children or adults or both. Right. And we need more um, as we move in that direction. Um, We'll also need improved um, oversight and monitoring and transparency. Um, That gets particularly difficult in our juvenile systems because the juvenile systems are often confidential by nature. Right. Right. So so then they hide. Many of these practices are hidden behind a cloak of confidentiality. Um, That unknown, that confidentiality sometimes can, can become even worse. And some of the religious organizations that are running um, privately run organizations, and then if they claim the religious status, mm-hmm. they can often in many states avoid all oversight um, by the child welfare agency and often avoid licensing um, in terms of what's happening. So we, we need to shine a light, you know, and, and to know what's happening. Um, and we need um, independent um, auditors, could be inspector general's office, mm at the state or local level um, to do more justice audits, if you will, to be looking at our institutions to make sure um, they're on the right path. There's, uh, you know, there's um, examples of report after report after report I found by courts and prosecutors offices, probation departments, policing agencies, right? Annual reports and different um, uh, reports um, looking at um, performance, but those tend to be based upon performance based upon generating revenue, right? Mm-hmm. Not about maximizing justice. Um, so you know, we need to have the right goal. We have to have the right goal. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a very important part of our uh, democracy uh, that we don't often look at. It's a system of justice. Our guest is uh, author Daniel Hatcher, whose new book is Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System commodifies children and the poor, and it's put out by uh, UC Press. And I know there are people on on the left in particular who say, you know, it's all just bad. Just don't even, don't bother with elections. They're all the same. Democrats, Republicans, there's nothing we can do. And they surrender. They give up. It's difficult. It's not simple. As you're describing, the solutions are anything but simple. As you say, there's so many layers here. But does that mean we just turn away from it and don't do anything? I don't think so. You know, I think as as President Lincoln said, you know, we have to look at the, the better angels of our nature. And yes, listen to those ideals. You know, we have mass incarceration, the breakup of families, property taking for the payment of fines uh, by poor people, so many examples. And one hel- can't help but wonder if if it's realistically possible to give those words equal justice under law 
meaning. I mean, you know, we, people are very cynical about the system of law right now. I mean, are there two uh, levels of justice? Kind of seems that way. The evidence of injustice has been there so long. I'm getting the sense that there that you may see some evidence that it's starting to be addressed. And, and you, you talked about a couple things, uh, uh, justice audits and things like that, that, that can be done. It's not, as, as H.L. Mencken said, to every complex problem there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. And we, so there are things that are, that are currently being done. Do you see things within the system of justice and within the, the legislators uh, across the country that are uh, starting to address this? Are there people, you mentioned the ACLU and other organizations uh, that are doing good things? Are there uh, individuals, elected people who are starting to, uh, to pick up on this? Yes, I, I, you know, I, I have hope, and if I'm being candid, I feel like I have to have hope. I need yes. to, I need <laughs> to have that, that that hope, and we as a as a population um, need to believe in in ourselves and in each other, um, and that ultimately is government, right? You know, like whether whether we like it or not, we're all um, interconnected uh, and we're all interdependent, both on each other and the government um, institutions that are intended to serve us. Um, you know, from whether we're on the right or the left or anywhere in between, right? You know, that's that's an inherent truth um, of humanity and 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 our our, our society. Um, so I do have hope. I you know I I would be lying if I didn't say I don't feel jaded sometimes. Like you know it's it's um, I, I I long sometimes. I wish I could just give in to the apathy um, yeah. and, and 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 just give up, but but we can't. No. Like and because as I like when I read numbers of, of what's happening to individuals, like through these revenue um, machines uh, that are pulling in children and adults into these systems, um, you know, I've represented enough people. Like I can, I, I, I know the stories, right. You know, and I can imagine all the stories. Sometimes I can almost feel, you know, what's, what's happening. So I, so I feel driven um, to expose the practices and we have to keep trying. I, there have been good examples um, you know, both at the state level and federal level. Um, very recently, um, um, the Administration for Children's and Families, a sub-agency under um, HHS at the federal level, has enacted, um, has not enacted, has um, written new guidance to encourage less pursuit of harmful revenue practices against um, impoverished parents and the children who are pulled into the foster care system through these child support proceedings that are actually, even though it's called child support, it's money that's, that's pursued to pay back cost of care, which can block reunification efforts. Um, I've worked on uh, legislation in multiple states now and in multiple cities um, to stop um, one of the practices that I've written about of child welfare agencies that are taking resources from children in their care. Right. You know, directly monetizing youth by, by, by taking their social, their survivor benefits and their disability benefits. Um, and we talk about the power of individuals. Individuals have been standing up in that type of uh, legislative arena to have a voice. I've seen former foster youth, right, testifying about what they experienced. Um, parents who testify about what they've experienced. Advocates who realize this is happening. One individual can have a huge impact. So, you know, and through um, good 
journalism and news programs, you know, programs that, that um, expose facts such as your own, right, we become more aware. And as we come up and become more aware, individuals can have a, an impact. I know um, um, uh, it must be, it's, it's on the internet, so it must be true. There's a, yeah. there's some kind of a quote by um, 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 Einstein where he talked about, like, if I had an hour to fix any problem, I'd spend the first 55 minutes understanding the problem, mm. right? So it takes um, digging to understand what's happening. Before we can fix something, we need to know what that something is, yes. right? And, and sure. what's what's causing the problems, right? But, you know, so I, I think, again, your show does a great service and, and exposing and helping us to understand that problem so we can work together towards fixing. Yes, yes, we can. I, I do believe in people... We are not powerless. It's it's still barely a democracy, maybe hanging by a thread, but we are as individuals able to participate, able to do the research. Yes, it's hard. It's a lot easier to just look away, but to make make it better, you got to look at it. You got to see what the heck the problem is. As you say, before it can be made better, you have to understand it. And it sounds like your book uh, goes a long way to do that. The book is called Injustice Inc. How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor, put out by UC Press. And uh, thank you, Daniel Hatcher, for being with us today and for the, for the important work that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bert, for having me on the show. It's been wonderful talking with you. They're taking her children away Because they said she was not a good mother They're taking her children away 